Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 41. However, um, confectionery and biscuit consumption, we think, is increasing. And perhaps that's because sugar is a, a little luxury. And right now, we all need a bit of help um, to get us through this, the stress of the pandemic. The role of trade finance specialists, be it at a bank or a trading company, is to connect all these parties. Much like a conductor of the orchestra would manage timely contribution from the different instruments to produce a perfect sound. So hopefully that quick overview on sugar hasn't made everyone too hungry. If you're working from home, please step away from your biscuit tin. I guess from a lighter-hearted perspective to continue buying cheese and keep eating biscuits to fight us through uh, this current period of, of, of uncertainty. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Now, the ongoing impact of the coronavirus pandemic has been extremely difficult for many businesses around the world. Alongside the downfall of the oil industry, amongst many others, we're here today to discuss the common commodity that's impacting many people's lives, sugar. Today, we're delighted to hear from Tanya Epstein and Stephen Geldart from Zarnico discussing in detail the impact of COVID-19 on sugar supply chains. Thank you both for joining us here on Trade Finance Talks. So to begin with, a quick overview. Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do at Zarnico? My name is Tanya Epstein. I joined Zarnico right at the start of this year, and it's fair to say that I'm very excited to be on this side of the barricade in the current environment. I have been working with Zarnico since 2009 when I joined Bank Lumi, where Zarnico was already a client for well over a decade. I am now responsible for the newly created Structured Finance Division, and I know you wanted to touch base on this later on today. Thanks, Tanya. And Stephen, good to hear an introduction from you, but also your tips for working from home. Hello, Depesh. Thank you. So I'm Stephen Geldas, and I'm head of analysis at Zonico. I joined Zonico 12 years ago as an analyst, and before that, I'd worked for a couple of years in the oil industry. Today, I'm responsible for a team of 15 analysts around the world, and we all make sure that Zonico understands the sugar, um, ethanol, food ingredients, and packaging markets as well as we can, mostly to try to identify opportunities where we can help our customers. We make all of our analysis available to everybody in the world on our app, which is called Zap. That's available online at zap.com, but also through Google Play and Apple app stores for mobiles. And we try not to write boring reports. We only ever try to tell you exactly what we think is happening or about to happen in these markets in simple language. My top tip for working from home is to have a pretty rigid timetable and to stick with it. So I've got a two-year-old son. My wife also works full-time. We tried to mix and match in the early days of corona lockdown. It was a complete disaster. No one got anything done. So now we have a pretty rigid schedule of who's working and who isn't. And we, we run it to the minute in this household. Fantastic. We'll make sure we don't overrun on the podcast. I think they're currently out feeding the ducks right now. So Tanya, could you tell us a little bit about Zarnico? What's the importance of sugar and ethanol? Can you give us a bit of a market overview and, and who are the biggest producers and buyers? 
As a global supply chain service, Zana could buy, sell, and move sugar, food ingredients, packaging, and ethanol around the world. Our company has been operating for over 150 years and was founded by a rather eccentric character called Julius Caesar Zanico, who was born in Germany to Polish parents in 1838. His work and legacy led to the expansion of the business all over the world and has meant that for many years Zanico was best known as a player in the sugar industry. Last year, we bought, sold, and moved 4.3 million metric tons of raw sugar nearly 1.5 million metric tons of refined sugar, and just under 40,000 metric tons of ingredients. This year, we have incorporated a new GV in Brazil, which will be dedicated entirely to trading ethanol. So in many respects, although we are an old business, we are working with the same spirit that our founder introduced in the late 19th century. For example, our app, Zap, which Stephen uh, mentioned earlier this morning, is like an online and interactive version of the sugar newspapers that Cesar Zanico himself used to distribute among industry players at the time when transparency in trading was unheard of. In fact, this seems like a very good time for me to pass the floor to Stephen, who is responsible for this side of the business. I hope everyone's familiar with sugar. Almost everyone in the world eats it. It's one of life's little inexpensive luxuries. Sugar just tastes good. And in fact, as a food ingredient, sugar does have a lot going for it. Obviously, most people like sweet flavors, but also sweetness helps with savory foods too. So if you add a hint of sweetness, it can balance other flavors. The best way for you to find this out for yourselves is to get into the kitchen. So if you don't believe me, try making a tomato sauce with and without a bit of sugar and you'll be able to see the difference. Sugar also has um, a lot of other useful properties. So it attracts and retains moisture in food, and that means it can act as a preservative because it draws moisture out of bacteria. So that's why people used to preserve fruits by turning them into jam. The moisture retention also gives foods pleasant texture, so it makes your ice cream creamy, for example. On top of that, sugar also caramelizes, so that helps make cereals and biscuits crisp, and it gives baked goods a nice, rich brown color. And lastly, sugar provides bulk. So if you make a cake without sugar, it's rather sad and flat. So hopefully that quick overview on sugar hasn't made everyone too hungry. If you're working from home, please step away from your biscuit tin. The other thing to note away from sugar as an ingredient is it's also very cheap. You get all of these benefits for a very low price. So if you think about the times before the coronavirus lockdown, when we were all still allowed to go to Starbucks to get a coffee, Starbucks charged you quite a lot of money for the coffee, but gave you the sugar for free. Looking in more detail at sugar, sugar is made from two different plants. It's made from sugarcane and sugar beet. Sugarcane is a tropical plant and beet is a temperate plant. Most of the world's biggest sugar producers and exporters make sugar from cane. And so when we're looking at the big sugar producers, we're thinking about countries like Brazil, like India and Thailand. Europe and the United States of America make a lot of sugar from beet. But this is slightly less important for global trade. Most of that sugar is consumed near to where it's made. If we want to get even more nerdy, sugar is made in different grades. So pure sucrose is white and crystalline, but almost all sugar sold in the world today has some form of impurity in it. So sparkling white refined sugar actually has very little impurity, whereas the expensive organic dark brown sugar that my wife likes to use for baking actually has quite a lot of impurity. That's, that impurity is where the depth of flavor comes from, or, or at least that's what she tells me. Refined sugar and lots of other these special brown sugars are food-grade products, so they need to be moved around the world in proper conditions. They need to be properly bagged and safe to eat. 
However, you can also make raw sugar from cane. Raw sugar is an industrial product that can be loaded straight onto a truck or into a ship's hold, and then it can be transported to a sugar refinery for more processing. And Zanaco as a company operates um, in the supply chains for both raw sugar and for, for white sugar. The big buyers of sugar are exactly who you'd expect. So as I said earlier, almost everyone eats sugar, and the world's largest food and beverage companies use a lot of it. There is um, one other market that's worth touching on. Tanya mentioned it earlier. It's, it's ethanol. In some countries, sucrose from cane is also converted into ethanol to use as a road fuel. This happens most notably in Brazil. The cane industry in Brazil is actually one of the more interesting ones in the world because a lot of the mills are flexible. They can choose whether to make ethanol or sugar, depending on the amount of money they will earn from each. Other big cane countries like India, Thailand and China are trying to roll out ethanol programs, or at least they were before the coronavirus pandemic hit road fuel demand. American ethanol, it's a very well-developed market, but most of that ethanol comes from corn and not sugar. Ethanol as a fuel has quite a lot going for it as well. It's a biofuel, so it's renewable, it's low carbon, and ethanol also helps oxygenate gasoline, and that makes engines more efficient. Hopefully that's given everyone a brief run-through of the sugar and ethanol basics. One of the really sad things about being an analyst for the last 12 years is I can talk for absolutely hours on any of these topics. If we were allowed to hold parties nowadays, I probably wouldn't get invited to them anyway. But anyone who wants to find out even more, I'm obviously as welcome to contact me or find what they're looking for on Zap. Thank you very much, Stephen. And I'm hungry just listening to that. I think absolutely fascinating. 4.3 million metric tons of raw sugar. I mean, I thought I was a big buyer and consumer of sugar and sugar products, but, but that's quite a lot. Of course, the financing of sugar and ethanol is key here. So taking into account pricing risk, physically trading commodities, and of course, financing the fairly complex supply chain. So for commodity traders in the commodity finance industry, a lot of this is done, of course, through trade finance. Tanya, I've got a question, I guess, about the two main types of prepayment finance, trade finance and structured trade finance. Can you explain the difference? The two are extremely similar, and there is a massive overlap, especially since globalization has practically erased borders and international trade and travel. However, there remains a subtle difference. I'll start with trade finance. Traditionally, it dealt with all aspects of the relationship between producers, sellers, and buyers, assisting them all with bridging the trade cycle funding gap. Taking it back to basics, an exporter requires an importer to pay for goods delivered. To protect their cash flow, the importer would ask the exporter to show documents which demonstrate that the goods have been shipped. In turn, an exporter's bank will assist by issuing a letter of credit to the importer, therefore providing assurance of payment upon presentation of documents. For a bank, this serves as a base for a self-liquidating transaction where the movement of goods is evidenced by standard documents. This then obviously gives a role to play to third parties, such as forwarders, shippers, warehouse operators, independent inspectors, agents, etc. The role of trade finance specialists be it at a bank or a trading company, is to connect all these parties. Much like a conductor of the orchestra would manage dynamic contribution from the different instruments to produce a perfect sound, trade finance professionals will make sure that every party in the chain steps in at the right time, ensuring that cash flow moves in unison with documentation chain, which in turn correlates with the movement of goods. In structured finance, we tend to look further up the risk curve, 
It would normally entail a structure which enables a producer to get financing before material is produced and carries performance risk which cannot be fully covered by the classic documentation chain evidencing the movement of goods, quite simply because the goods do not yet exist. Another example of that would be a stock carry in a commodity which cannot be hedged. Stakeholders in such a transaction would look at other types of security, be it an alternative collateral, price and risk management strategy, location swaps, etc. In simple terms, structured finance products would look to offer a design capable of creating cash flow, which can be made available ahead of production, with the intention of repaying the loan once exports begin, and where performance or price risk are protected by an alternative asset class, made available from a pool of collateral which is not directly linked to the commodity in the export contract. Structured commodity finance is there to design tailor-made financial products which help manage supply, demand, and price shocks in multiple jurisdictions. However, as I said before, overlap is big, and close collaboration between trade finance and structured finance is absolutely paramount to offering a farm-to-fork experience to our clients. Thanks, Tanya. And we've certainly seen price shocks, changes to demand and supply, as well as huge cash flow issues within the supply chain in the commodity industry since the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic. And let's start with a bit of a macroeconomic perspective. And Stephen, I guess one for you. What's the impact of halted supply chains, the closing down of the hospitality and entertainment sector, and also the economic shock on sugar supply chains? So in many countries previously, the majority of sugar consumption was out of home. And all of that has now been, a lot of that has now been lost due to coronavirus measures. Where that's happened, in-home consumption has, of course, increased, but often it can't make up the gap. So as an example, if you think about going to the cinema in England, if you went to the cinema and bought a drink, the regular drink size you used to be able to buy, this is regular, was nearly two thirds of a litre. And a large drink was more than a litre. And drinking that volume of soda at a movie or a sports event or a concert, that was normal behaviour in the old days. But it's quite difficult to imagine doing this at home. So if I imagine that my wife and I were going to sit down to watch something on Netflix tonight and I walked into the room with a litre of soda and a bowl of ice cream, she'd probably think I'd gone mad. If we then uh, take this and look in a bit more detail, what we see is we think there are winners and losers. So... Soft drink consumption has fallen sharply this year, and that's because in many countries, bars, restaurants, cinemas, theatres, they're all shut, and sporting events, festivals, concerts just, just aren't being held. However, confectionery and biscuit consumption, we think, is increasing. Perhaps that's because sugar is a, a little luxury. Right now, we all need a bit of help to get us through the stress of the pandemic. The other thing I should mention, I guess, is, is the in-home, out-of-home consumption divide. That's really a, a developed world problem. And in other parts of the world, very large parts of the world, the, the things can be a lot harder. So if we look at India, for example, India went into a nationwide lockdown at the end of March. And in India, millions and millions of people are employed as casual laborers, and they receive daily cash payment for their work. These people are now out of work and so can't really afford to buy sugar at all. And it's a combination of these reasons as why we think that sugar consumption in 2020 has, has fallen compared to where it was in 2019. Falling sugar consumption is actually incredibly rare. So sugar has had a lot of bad press in recent years, but despite all of that, sugar consumption generally doesn't fall each year, not when you look at it globally. So the last time worldwide sugar consumption fell in the year was in 1980. And that was driven by price. Back in 1980, raw sugar prices were very expensive. They were 45 cents per pound. 
whereas today they're close to 10 cents per pound, which is historically quite cheap. So for this year, we're really into uncharted territory when it comes to sugar consumption and what coronavirus has done. I should also point out these problems aren't unique to sugar. They're happening across quite a lot of other food markets as well. So if we look at dairy, for example, the global dairy industry really has had to respond to changes in consumer behavior as well. So if we look in the UK, around 50% of fresh milk used to be sold to the catering industry or to wholesale. So that fresh milk will go to coffee shops, to restaurants, to canteens, um, to factories and But now that we have a pandemic, we've all found that our daily cappuccino on the commute isn't quite as essential as we thought it was. And that means that farmers are struggling to shift fresh milk. This is actually quite an important one for me. My in-laws are dairy farmers, so I have this point to urge every listener to help out. Eat as much cheese as you possibly can while you're at home during the pandemic. Despite... All of these challenges um, around consumption, the thing that's been quite positive is that sugar supply chains have been very robust. Actually, it's it's been remarkable that the sugar supply chain is completely globalized. So to take an example, sugar cane is grown in the interior of Brazil. It's crushed to make raw sugar, and that raw sugar is then driven a thousand kilometers to the port and loaded onto a ship. That ship can then sail to a refinery in the Middle East, so maybe into Dubai or Saudi Arabia and it gets processed into high-quality refined sugar, that refined sugar then gets bagged and loaded into a container and moved by ship to, let's say, East Africa. And at that point, the sugar in East Africa is then used in a bottling plant or a biscuit factory. It's made into the food or beverage and then is consumed in Kenya or Uganda or, or wherever. That's a remarkable process when you think about how big the geography is and how many individual components there are to getting that sugar from the field all the way through to the end user. And... Despite our early worries earlier this year, there was potential for things to go wrong. So far, every single link in that supply chain has operated well. I haven't heard of any major stockouts of sugar anywhere in the world related to coronavirus. So if we look at the ports around the world are operating pretty close to normally. A lot of them have special measures in place, but generally things are going fine. Uh, factories are operating with social distancing, but um, largely are still operating. And if anything, it's been that uh, final step of getting the food or drink to the retail consumer, which has been the hardest step, not all of the bits before that. And as a commodity industry, I think this is something we can all be really proud of. We're fighting the biggest challenge in a generation. And so far, the world's food supplies have continued to flow pretty much normally. Finally, if you're interested at all in keeping up with any of these developments as they happen, my team are updating the situation every day on Zap. So we have maps of port disruptions. We write about problems where we see them emerging, and we try to tell you exactly what they mean on the ground, what's going on, how might they be resolved, and what might it mean for your business. So I hope as we get more used to working with the pandemic that things improve and they don't get any worse and where we're improving from is actually a very positive base. Things have been remarkably robust so far. Thanks Stephen and I guess I echo your words. There's been a remarkable response and it's definitely highlighted some of the complexities in global food supply chains that I think a lot of people weren't fully aware of. Now we're going to talk about the financing perspective on the sugar supply chain. So we've seen commodity markets go into oblivion in recent weeks following the outbreak of COVID-19. So from rock bottom and even negative oil prices to a shift in ownership of commodities and also a material change in lender and insurer appetite. What have you seen from your perspective, Tanya, and perhaps starting with a lender perspective 
so banks, FIs and funds, what's been the impact so far? Well, at this point, could I direct you to the opinion section on our website, where in March and April this year, we have posted two articles on this exact subject. Without giving you too many spoilers, what I can say we saw when the coronavirus first struck in January this year was gradual but sure reduction in risk appetite from across the sector. It is very interesting how these things often correlate. Taking the example of the quarantine today, people's incomes have dropped, however prices for groceries have increased. Latest government advice in the UK is not to take, or in London I should say, is not to take public transport unless absolutely necessary. However, the congestion charge in London has just been increased. Same with liquidity. International borders having to shut down and people forced to disperse led to severe disruptions to the physical movement of goods, escalating counterparty risk. At present, the environment for lenders is absolutely unprecedented, with businesses drawing on every available dollar, euro, or any currency permitted by the pre-pandemic agreed long terms. Rather like people we've seen rush to the supermarket to buy far more pasta than they normally would. Conversely, the disrupted transport infrastructure is showing signs of a clogged-up storage system, generating unprecedented demand for financing stocks at origin. If we look at Brazil again, for example, we can see this happening in real time. This comes at the time of bumper exports for soy and corn, meaning that supply chain infrastructure will be under pressure regardless of pandemic. We expect that demand for vessel loading at the port of Santos, for example, will exceed maximum capacity from July to October this year, meaning that goods will need to be in storage longer and thus require financing situation which is normally perfect for banks, not so much right now, as due diligence visits are completely impossible. Looking at it from another angle, government stimulus at the moment is unprecedented again, but anyone operating within the commodities space is currently puzzled by just how little interest, or indeed base rate reductions, had filtered down to the borrower. The answer is simple. Banks assess lending risk on the basis of three principal questions. Am I going to get my money back? How? And when? In basic terms, the entire commodity finance banking infrastructure is centered around a repayment schedule driven by the timely movement of goods. Delayed shipments coupled with massive drop in the price of oil means that banks' credit infrastructure is inundated with a tsunami of waivers and is forced to prioritize existing business over anything new much like the NHS trying to first take care of the sick while the healthier are asked to stay at home. The entire finance community is currently working on making sure existing borrowers continue to have access to funding and are not subject to a default. However, we are seeing some examples of banks adapting their funding terms to specifically address the pandemic, such as pivoting their activity towards short-term solutions, for example, to support prioritizing emergency funding for medical equipment and food. But to be fair, these cases are still rare. This is also true for insurance companies, but we will touch on this later. In any case, it seems to me that the sector looks worse than it is. It is easy to forget for us that we have all been through the cycle, the crisis before. Banks, much like insurance companies, will learn their lessons and come out of the other side. But this will take time. And time creates an opportunity for alternative rate of lenders to step up as they are able to act with more flexibility than banks and to fund collateral that sits outside of the Basel-imposed collateral valuation rules. I am talking about the funds community, of course, but they have their own fires to fight in the short to medium term. 
Funds are not too dissimilar to banks in terms of their assessment of risk, except their stakeholders are faster to react. On the positive side, one would expect that the term view inherent in that business would be less sensitive to immediate market volatility, as uncertainty would be expected to settle over a longer period of time. However, post-declaration of the global pandemic and the absence of any visibility in the medium term an opportunity for a private investor to exit is attractive. Human nature. Private and institutional investors want to better understand risk already on the books before they take on new business. Quite simply, the physical location of goods within the supply chain and who holds the title. This means due diligence visits, again, but the borders are closed. So it's a catch-22 scenario. All in all, it is clear that the normal finance community infrastructure is under stress and return on capital is less important now than getting your money back. Thanks, Tanya. An interesting scenario indeed when you put all the different types of finances together in, in this current situation. So moving into an insurer perspective, given that the risks and exposures are, are the same as the banks and the expectation that defaults will increase, what have you seen in the markets? Insurance companies follow the bank's strategy and risk appetite very closely, albeit a step removed from the front line. It is important for them to trust the controls of the insured, make sure that all the necessary tools remain in the place and that the cash cycle continues to be transparent. Insurance companies, like banks or indeed trading companies, choose their partners with diligence and care. And when the infrastructure is stress-tested and proves robust, relationships continue. At the time like this, information sharing and transparency is key. And the more your partner know about your business, the more open they will remain to doing business with you. Business partners and colleagues from my banking days know that I always liked to compare bank-client relationship to a barter exchange, provided there is the flow of reliable, verifiable information, liquidity will be made available. Insurance is just the same. Thanks very much, Tanya. Now, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to ask a, a one final question around the risk side. So moving forward, as we look to reopening economies, trade flows and supply chains as people go back to work, how are traders approaching risk management and also new market opportunities? To be honest, I think it's fair to say that our risk management practices have not really changed following the pandemic. Our IT capabilities have been significantly enhanced to embrace the new culture of working remotely. But in terms of risk practices, Zanaco operates in accordance with long-established risk management principles which stood the test of time. It is not the same for the business, of course. It is no secret that with port closures around the world and record sugar crop in Brazil, it is likely that stock carry opportunities will be plentiful, and not only at origin. The one lesson that this pandemic has taught the producers or processors is the diversification of supply channels and stock of all ingredients, not just raw materials, is key to the continuous production of food. Therefore, the just-in-time delivery stock operations at destination are an area of focus for us this year as well as diversification of product offering to enlarge our ingredients business. The basis of our model, of our business model, I should say, is risk management and cost control. And this is particularly important given the geographies where we operate. A few years back, I've read The King of Oil about Mark Rich, written by Daniel Aman. 
and came across the definition of the resource curse or the paradox of plenty. Stephen earlier was speaking about the demographic of the sugar industry and only 20, where only 20% of sugar in the world is produced in OECD countries. The balance comes from emerging economies, and this is why we have physical presence in Brazil, China, Miami, Thailand, Singapore. We control the risk by putting our own people on the ground, Sanico local employees and expats, who can go and see the operation firsthand, understand the points of tension, and manage the risk. Thank you very much, Tanya and Stephen. I think we are certainly entering an area of completely uncharted territory, possibly a new normal. And, and as you alluded to earlier, the fall in con- sugar consumption has been the first since uh, 1980, also at a time when sugar prices are, are at record low. So I think the top tips, I guess from a lighter-hearted perspective, are to continue buying cheese and keep eating biscuits to fight us through this current period of of uncertainty. We've seen a remarkable response from the industry, and I think there'll certainly be an acceleration of new innovations, new technologies, IoT, DLT, blockchain, and automation. I think it can unlock certainly lots of new opportunities for driving efficiencies and, and perhaps one for a later podcast. So Tanya, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks and look forward to hearing from you next week at TXF Commodities Virtual. Deepesh, thank you very much for the opportunity. This has been a new experience for me. And to conclude, I just wanted to say that uncertainty creates opportunity. But to capitalize on that, retrol a key. And this is exactly what we are focused on this year as a priority. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 